Italy is also known for the best leather bags, best leather jackets, and best leather journals known to man. And that was providential because I'm going to talk a little bit about Italy in my introduction. Well, it is great to be with you all again this morning, and we are going to continue our journey in Acts. You know, none of us have gotten a lot of time to travel this year because we've been restricted, as we know. But I feel like we've lived a little bit vicariously through Paul and his companions as they've gone to all the towns and ports and cities, and they're not finished yet. And you've probably been presented with this question before. I know I have in regard to salvation. What about all of the people who have never heard of Jesus Christ? What happens to them when they die? That's a big topic. And we know some of the theological answers for that. No man will be without excuse. The heavens declare his glory, so God reveals himself. And you can at least start at that point of faith. God is 100% just. But the topic has always intrigued me because I love history, and I love to think about the people of the past. So if you've been to Italy and perhaps been to the ruins of Pompeii, that once booming town of 20,000 people. It's so fascinating. You know, that volcano then blew in 79 AD, Mount Eusuvius, and the ash wiped out everything. And so when I visited, I was walking the streets wondering, had the gospel made it there? Had these people heard about Jesus before that fateful day when the sky went black? And I did a little research about it because it really intrigued me. So in the last chapter of Acts, chapter 28, it tells the story of Paul landing in Petieloi, which is modern-day Pazuli. I know I'm not saying that right. Is that missionary gone already? I don't know. (laughs) Shout it out if you're from Italy. Okay. Somewhere around Rome. But... It was located on the Bay of Naples near Pompeii, where Paul says they found brethren and were invited to stay for seven days. And so we'll see that when we get to chapter 28. But Pompeii is 41 miles from Petioloi. That's eight hours on foot. So that's only a one or two day journey, depending on how fast you walk, or a short boat ride. There were brethren in Petioloi. So surely there were brethren 40 miles away. Was there a witness for Christ on the streets of Pompeii? Without a doubt. Were Christ followers in that ancient city? You bet. Warning others and telling them about Christ and the truth of the gospel. And so we know that the truth of the gospel has reached and is reaching every city, town, state, country, cave, and province since Jesus walked the earth and the church was birthed. But that's always a great comfort to me when I realize, you know what, Lord, did it get there? Did they hear? And then the Lord so graciously shows me, yes, they did. It was there too. So we've had a front row seat to the action and the spread of the gospel as we have studied Acts. So open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Acts 21, and we will get started. Remember last week, I said we will see Paul's journey from being Paul the missionary to Paul the prisoner as we head toward the end of Acts. And so we have three points today, Paul's ministry from Miletus to Caesarea, 
Paul's arrival in Jerusalem and Paul's arrest. So his ministry from Miletus to Caesarea. Paul has his traveling companions. They're back and they're setting sail. Remember, they're headed toward Jerusalem. And we saw that last week. And we're following this group. And they go to seven different cities in seven verses. So they are on the move. They went to Kaz and Rhodes and Patera. And then verse two, it says, finding a ship to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Apparently, Paul thought they'd never make it to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost at the rate they were going. So he found another ship to meet their needs. So they make a stop in Tyre and the church in Tyre has been founded by some of the people who left Jerusalem after Stephen was martyred. So there's an interesting little link. Perhaps people that witnessed the stoning of Stephen and remember Paul was there unconverted as Saul, now they are brothers in Christ. That's the truth and beauty of the gospel is being bound up in who Christ is. And there at the cross is where enemies become brothers and sisters in Christ. So verse four says, and finding disciples, we stayed seven days. They told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And this can cause a little conflict when you look at it, since Paul is told by the spirit in our last chapter, Acts 20, 22, that he's going bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. That was his task. He was compelled, although he knew he would suffer chains and tribulations. So these disciples are saying in the spirit not to go. Well, the best interpretation, it seems, is it wasn't a command from the disciples, but rather they knew Paul would face hardship. And as their beloved friend, they didn't want to see that happen. So this would be an emotional response, which is understandable. Paul was compelled to go by the Spirit, but the Spirit warned him too of the consequences. So he knew what he was facing. It's a little like the disciples' response to Jesus in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. So we see that emotional response from Peter in Matthew 16, 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned aside and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And then we'll see the same response in our next town shortly in Caesarea. It looks like nobody wanted to let go of Paul. So our scripture goes on to say, at the end of seven days, they went down to the shore, and it sounds like a big group was there with the wives and kids. Again, what is recorded? They knelt down and prayed. And from Paul's pen come some of our most beloved scriptures on prayer. Don't we all know so well Philippians 4, 6 through 7? Be anxious for nothing, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I love Matthew Henry's statement that those that are going to see should, when they quit the shore, commit themselves to God by prayer and put themselves under his protection as those that hope, even when they leave the terra firma, the dry ground. Do you ever feel like that? To find firm footing for their faith in the providence and promise of God. Sometimes when your feet don't feel so sure in a trial, 
So Paul and his companions make a quick stop in Tamaes, I think, <laughs> trying to pronounce these words, onto Caesarea. And in verse 8, it says, they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. So we saw a little of him in our lesson. Philip was the Phyllis, Philip who baptized the eunuch in 840. Think about 20 years have, has gone by. And so Philip and Paul were once enemies. Keep remembering this. They were once enemies. Galatians 1.22 through 24, Paul says this, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. That's how they knew Paul before. And they glorified God in me. And so that, again, the glorious bond in the body of Christ, where you were once an enemy, now you are unified. Philip had preached the gospel to the Samaritans, it says in Acts 8, to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. And then from Astos, as he preached through, he kept preaching the gospel. And in the Greek, it means that he kept preaching it over and over and over to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And it looks like that's where he set up shop. So he had four virgin daughters prophesying. And it isn't recorded what they said, but in broad terms, they complimented the ministry of the apostles. Most likely within context, they prophesied by receiving divine revelation and then spoke instructively to individuals. It has been recorded that early believers considered these women a valuable source of information. Luke could have used them as a source for writing his gospel and the book of Acts. He had many opportunities to talk to them here and also when Paul spent two years in his imprisonment in Caesarea in Acts 24. So the broad view is that these women were used to build up the growing church. And I like the little composite of spiritual gifts in this scene. You have Philip the evangelist, the daughters who prophesy. You have Paul's wisdom and knowledge as an apostle and his gift of healing. So God is growing and edifying the church with the different gifts that he gave to each person. But our specific prophecy of what would happen to Paul came from Agabus. And we saw him first in chapter 11 when he predicted a great famine in the world, and that did happen. And then he's going to act out the prophecy and give Paul and the people around him a visual of what is going to happen. And apparently this was common with the Old Testament uh, prophets used to do this. So read along with me in Acts 21.10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul has been given a specific illustration of what would happen. He would be bound and delivered to the Gentiles. The warning from the Holy Spirit, that was intended to prepare Paul not to stop him. And Agabus didn't even say, don't go. He simply explained what would happen. And I find this very comforting because God does this for us. We know the end of the story. We know what the last days look like. We know the Christian life is one of abundant joy and peace, but also of trials and persecution. We know my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, Psalm 73, 26. And I don't know about you, but I know in my circles, we're saying a lot these days, 
Why are we surprised this is happening? God told us it was going to. Are you surprised? Why are we surprised? He said that this is what we were going to face. I I have a lot of comfort, or I find a lot of comfort in being prepared. (laughs) So Acts 21.12 says, When they heard this, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So in the same way, the believers in Tyre told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And now here. And you know, it reminds me of Psalm 11, the Psalm of David. We studied Psalms a couple of years ago. One and two, it says, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. So the panic that launched the Psalm was not David, but that of his well-meaning counselors. They're afraid and they tell him, run for the hills. But David is peaceful. He says, in the Lord, I put my trust. And in a way, that's the way Paul is handling it too. I'm not going to run. I'm going to do what, has, what God has called me to do. And we are not David or Paul in their specific circumstances. God called them to a specific task. But there are people over the world who have lost their lives because they did what God called them to do. You follow the Lord's word and guidance and trust him for the outcome and for the consequences. And I think, how will I handle doing all God has called me to do, even if it involves some harsh realities? Remember the word trust, right? God knows the way that we take. He has hemmed us in and we can be confident in what he has for us. And notice the word we, that's our writer, Luke. So now even Luke is trying to dissuade Paul from going to Jerusalem. Luke uses the imperfect tense, emphasizing their repeated attempts to talk Paul out of it. So basically he's saying one would say, oh, Paul, don't go, please don't go. And then another one would say, Paul, you have to stay. It's going to be awful if you go. And then another one. So they just kept chiming in. I think that's what you would call the quintessential peer pressure. So Acts 21.13 says, Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul will not be deterred, even though the wording means that they were wailing loudly and continually. And break my heart means literally to crush together in pieces. That's what he's expressing to them. You are just disheartening me. And there's a slight touch of irony in Paul's statement that he is willing to be bound because bound was first used in Acts to describe Paul's attitude and actions against believers, to bind all who call on your name. In Acts 9, 13 through 16, it says, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, Paul how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name among before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul says, I was once, I once bound believers in chains, Now I'm ready to be chained for the gospel. That's a heart flip. 
So courage begets courage, ladies. Paul said, I'm ready, and it strengthened them, Paul being so resolute. And there's so many examples in the Bible, but also just in secular history, where one rightly timed pep talk changed the course of history. Then finally, verse 14 says, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. So they're saying we have to move forward, trusting the will of the Lord and entrusting Paul, our beloved friend, to God's will. Sometimes that takes a moment or two to get there. I don't blame them. Imagine if it was your beloved friend, maybe your adult son, or maybe your infirmed father. I was just watching Corey Ten Boom uh, and a little video clip, probably from the 80s. But if you don't know who that is, she is a wonderful saint who wrote The Hiding Place, and she was in a concentration camp. But I didn't know this. Her father was 84 when the Nazis came and arrested that family. And then her father died 10 days later. That is a hard providence of God, especially when you're thinking, I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do good works for the Lord, just like Paul. That's a hard providence. It was a hard-fought acceptance for Luke and the people who were pleading with Paul that he was going anyway. But there's that principal point of sovereignty and goodness. And I think sometimes it's easier to submit to God's providence in our own life than in the life of others when we see them going through pain and trials. And I love what Spurgeon says. He says, where you cannot trace the hand of God, you must trust the heart of God. So not just, of course, for yourself, but for all of your loved ones. So our next section is Paul arriving in Jerusalem and then the elders' resolution. So they're finally in Jerusalem. You saw that in your lesson. And some of the disciples of Caesarea went with them, even though they knew to be associated with Paul might mean that they too could wind up in some trouble. But like I said, courage begets courage. So Paul's arrival in Jerusalem marked the end of his missionary journey. As I said, from now on, he'll be an ambassador in chains. And this passage is going to show Paul's fellowship with the Jerusalem church and the events leading to his arrest. So we'll take a look at that. Paul's first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion was not so peaceful. Luke records that when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, remember that, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a true disciple, Acts 9.26. And even after being accepted by the believers, he was rejected by the Hellenistic Jews who were still attempting to put him to death. So here we are again, about 20 years later, Paul had a good reputation among the Jewish believers, but the unbelieving Jews still wanted to kill him. So now they're in Jerusalem and read with me Acts 21, 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So we have James, the brother of Jesus, the head of the Jerusalem church, and Paul told in detail the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. What a great conversation that would have been. I I wonder, did he tell them about the Philippian jailer? 
and the, how, the whole household getting saved. You know, God made this big earthquake. That would have been a great story to tell. Or maybe Mars Hill, when the people at Mars Hill heard these Gentiles, these Greeks, and they came to faith. So this is encouraging for them. And then in Acts 21.20, it says, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have, been, who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So this is a very exciting conversation. There's so many people getting saved and coming to faith. Then we have the situation where the elders tell Paul, there is a rumor. He's been teaching the Jews to forsake Moses and ignore heritage and customs. Those are false accusations, but like all false accusations, they can be deadly. They can do great damage. And this period in history, intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest were abounding. So this might cause or might threaten the Jerusalem church's evangelistic efforts. And of course, nobody wanted that to happen. So there is a distinction, though, remember this, between the truly believing Jews in this section and what we know as Judaizers, who viewed keeping the law as a means of salvation and then spreading rumors. So it says in verse 21, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are coming, who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our custom. Well, the elder said, we need to run interference and we need to do some damage control, Paul. So they came up with a solution and they said, do the following things. This should prove your sincerity. We are still in a transition time with some of the Jewish believers who were not ready to let go of the ceremonial aspects of the law. The apostles and leaders in the Jerusalem council, remember we read about that in Acts 15, don't condemn continuing these practices. So Paul acquiesces to some of these things because we know what he says about this. For the weaker brother in Romans 14.1, Paul says, be careful until they fully understand their freedom. And he will do, we know, whatever it takes to remove obstacles when it comes to the gospel. One commentator asks, why are so many believing Jews still clinging to the law of Moses? Well, old customs are difficult to change. There was freedom to observe special days and diets, and believers were not to judge one another about this. The same grace that gave the Gentiles freedom to abstain also gave the Jews freedom to observe. So all God asked was that they receive one another and not create problems or divisions, and that is a theme of church unity. So eventually, things like this um, fade. It won't be a dominant issue in the church after the Jewish revolt against Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem. The influence of the Jerusalem church wanes. Christianity becomes predominantly Gentile, which we see that, of course, today, And then other churches come to the forefront, like Antioch and Alexandra. But Paul was so the man for the hour. He understood the adherence to the law. He bled Jewish law and custom to the letter before he was converted. Remember, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. Of course, I'll do whatever it takes for the gospel and to prove I haven't forsaken my heritage and that those are lies. He is so deeply grateful for his salvation. All of those demands on him seem so small, he seems to accept them with joy and no complaints. 
He who is forgiven much loves much. Isn't that an example of who Paul is? He even says, For I am the least of all the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. So the elders tell Paul to be purified with the men who had taken the vow and pay their expenses, all four of them. I don't think that he was a man of great financial means, but you don't hear him complain. He says, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, Jesus said, speaking of false accusations that Paul is being accused of, in Matthew 5.11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When evil is spoken against a Christian falsely and for Christ's sake, it carries great blessing with it. And I think that's an important scripture to remember. And you saw that in your lesson. But think about this. Did you defend yourself the last time you were falsely accused? I did. (laughs) That's a tough one. And though this is talking about being persecuted for Christ's sake, yes, it's tough to even not defend yourself when you're being criticized, and maybe some of it is true. Maybe there's a kernel of truth here or there. So I'm just bringing it home as an argument from the lesser to the greater. How are we going to build that spiritual muscle of humility when being falsely accused for Christ's sake or any other reason? Do we handle that correctly? How are you doing now? How are you doing with a soft answer turning away wrath right now? How are you doing with speaking the truth in love right now? So then... Paul's arrest and appeal. What happens here on our third point? Paul is purified with the men and he's in the temple. And then what happens? Verse 27. When the seven days were most were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So Asia in Acts is not the continent that we think about, but the Roman province that occupies the eastern part of modern-day Turkey, and Ephesus was its capital. So the verb seeing means that they took a long searching glance and said, that's him. That's Paul, basically. Let's get him. (laughs) And the fact these Jews recognized Trophimus, the Ephesian, it says in verse 29, they were likely from Ephesus and they were devoutly religious. So then they accuse Paul of teaching against the people, the law, and the temple, and they say that Paul brought Gentiles into the temple to defile it. We know that's not true. Paul would have never done that because it would have caused uh, Trophimus his life. And since the Romans allowed the Jews to execute any Gentile who entered there, even Roman citizens, Josephus, the historian, reports that in antiquity, they found two inscriptions that say, No foreigner may enter within the barricade, which surround the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. I think that's where we probably got the sign, enter at your own risk, right? In fact, God had placed the court of the Gentiles in the temple complex for the very purpose of winning Gentiles to himself. 
It, meant to, it was meant to be the place for Jewish evangelism of Gentiles, a place for winning souls and bringing them near. It was also the very court that instead of using as a place of witness to the pagan Gentiles of the true and living God, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day usurped and converted into a robber's den. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Again, stressing the unity in the church with the Jews and the Gentiles. So then, lastly, what happens here? (laughs) It gets really dicey. Read with me, starting in uh, verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. That's your prophecy right there. Gentiles are binding him up. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. And from your lesson, you know that that means what? Kill him, right? Kill him. So all the city was stirred up. And the language of those verbs means ferocious. You can imagine the scene if you've ever been to Israel, all of those narrow streets. And it's just like this picture of all of these people running to give out their full throttle hatred, loose, basically. And the hypocrisy is terrible, but so telling. They drag him out so they can kill him, but not inside the temple because that would defile the temple. (laughs) They don't want a dead body in the temple. Okay, so they slam the door in his face, and they aren't going to take him out of the city and stone him as they did Stephen. They intended to beat him to a pulp right there. So all the city indicates that the false charges against Paul had spread like wildfire. And there's an encouraging part of this, if you think about it. All Jerusalem... One Jewish man, filled with the Spirit and the Word, was empowered to stir up an entire city. That's kind of exciting when you think about it. So the Romans went to put down the riot, 200 soldiers or more to rescue him. And of course, that is what saved his life. But you understand how violent and out of control it was because he, the commander could not even hear what was going on because it was so loud and so destructive. But part of Paul's ability to be humble and patient and long-suffering is because he knows it's a spiritual battle, of course, a scheme of Satan, who is the father of lies and the accuser. We're fighting a spiritual battle. We need to be mindful of that as well. But I think Paul was so willing to be humble and extend such mercy because you remember, what did Jesus say to him on the road to Damascus? 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I think he saw so much of God's mercy that was etched in his mind in such a way that he could never be deterred. Now, we are not going to have a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Not that I know of. That's not going to happen to us. But ladies, we can etch in our mind God's promises. We can etch those in our mind and our heart. We can dive deep into his extraordinary character. You can just pick a topic over the summer. Look up every single scripture on mercy. Look up every single scripture on loving kindness to strengthen you, to strengthen our souls, and to build our courage. Remember Paul's Holy Spirit, 100% in him, 100% in us. So you think about the false accusations and lies and violence against Paul. Again, his, what, what kept him going? That can be the same for us. His view of the gospel, his understanding of his place in it, and his love for the Lord. We can understand those same things, and that can strengthen us mightily. Paul was part of the Great Commission. He was joyfully pressing forward to fulfill the blessed words of Jesus in Acts 1.8. And if you haven't picked up yet that that is our theme of the book of Acts, because we all say it, I think, almost every week. You can say it with me, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That is the scripture that has been worked out in the book of Acts. He knows the power of the gospel. He knew God was in the business of saving souls, just like his, just like us. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says that in Romans 1. God has chosen you, Christian, for this time, for your place in the church and in history. I mentioned that last week. How are we responding to that? Are we excited? Do we believe with all our heart in the power of the gospel to change lives? So Paul, instead of being taken away and rescued, what does he do? Amazing. He wants to speak to the murderous crowd. That kind of love drives him. What causes a man to be beaten and abused and pummeled? to desire nothing more than to address those individuals who had done that to him? Well, I think this is one of my favorite verses that has come out of this study is when Peter is speaking to the Jews way back in September, we covered this, when we first started Acts, and he says to them in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. And definite means to appoint, to mark out the boundaries of. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in our narrative right here, we have lawless, violent men. But we know that God had marked out boundaries for Paul and appointed him for suffering in that way. And that's true for us as well. We face injustices and suffering in our life, sometimes at the hands of others. 
but it's part of God's foreknowledge and ultimate will in the injustices we face. God will hold every person accountable for their actions. God is never the author of sin, though people's sinful intents and actions serve the sovereign purpose of God. We are never to think God caused them to sin. No, but God judges every God judges people for the very sins he uses to carry out his purpose. Paul knew, too, that those beating him, if they never repented, they would pay for their sin in a Christless eternity. That's the kind of attitude we need to have when wronged. (laughs) We must trust our good God that he is in control of our destiny. Though it may seem, though it may seem, the people around us who are impacting us have more control that isn't true. Jerry Bridges says, and if you don't have his book, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, you must get a copy. It belongs on every Christian's bookshelf. He says, now God sometimes allows people to treat us unjustly. Sometimes he even allows their actions to seriously affect our futures viewed on a human plane. But God never allows people to make decisions about us that undermine his plan for us. It's still his ultimate plan. God will never allow any action against us that is not in accord with his will for us. And his will is always directed to our good. So we've got to remember that. So Paul, in his next gracious move, he says to the commander in verse 37, may I speak to you? There is nothing more striking in Paul's character, a commentator says, than his self-command and composure in all circumstances. Why? Because it's not easy to disturb a man who, who counts his life not dear if only he may complete his course. If God is our rock and our high tower, we shall not be moved. And not that he was perfect by any means. I just think he was really good at concentrating on his vertical relationship with God instead of horizontally in what he saw in his circumstances. He was excellent at that. We can take a lesson there too. So then, ladies, I love this. Think about how deeply he cared. He says, I implore you, let me speak to them which means he was begging him to, to let, let me speak to them. And it means the same word. It means to ask for something with pleading and a sense of urgency. Just to give you an idea of how much, the following gives you a sense of this. The leper, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Luke 12, the desperate father cries out to Jesus to cast a demon out of his son. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. Luke 9, 38. That's how emotional or how urgent Paul was when he was asking to speak to this crowd who wanted to kill him. Not one wasted opportunity. How convicting is that? I have to tell you that Uh, I am so easily deterred. I'm a prophecy junkie. said that last week. That's why I have a podcast about eschatology and the the end of days. 
And so I was talking to my hairdresser about that very thing, and she's kind of into it too. And she said, you know, Southern California is a great place to be during the end times because there is food everywhere, everywhere. And she says, just look across the street. That, that, that's an acorn tree. Oh, wow. Look at the, you know, the, the yarrow or whatever is coming up through the cracks of the sidewalk. You can eat all this stuff. Oh, I said, that's great. She said, actually, there's a book that I have called Roadside Plants of Southern California, and you can get it, and it tells you all about what's poisonous and what isn't. And I said, brilliant, because if I have to run for the hills, I want to know what to eat. So she said, there's a, there's a, actually, she said, you're not going to believe it, but there's a used bookstore right down the road, and I saw a copy of this book the other day. You should go get it. Oh, terrific. Okay, so I'm going to go. So I go. And I'm in the agriculture, farming, animal section. So I get the book, but then I see right next to it is the book Hind's Feet in High Places. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, if you don't know what that is, it's a wonderful spiritual classic, but it's an allegory and it doesn't belong in that section. So I thought, oh, okay, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to take up the book and I'm going to tell her that it's in the wrong section and I'm going to explain why. And maybe that'll be an open door for the gospel. So I get up there and I say, oh, this book is, I hand her my book that I want to purchase. This book is in the wrong section, you see, because it's not about how to raise deer or whatever. It's about how God gives us the feet of the deer to scale the high mountains. And I'm in, you know, in the middle of my pitch and she says, "Uh uh-huh. $4.10, please. I wish I could tell you, ladies, that I was not deterred. I was thinking, okay, I have to be like Paul, and I have to implore her. I have to beg her, oh, just listen to me just a little bit longer. But I didn't. Defeated, I took my book, and I left. But that's to tell you, I'm on a learning curve. (laughs) I want to improve. I want to get better. But talk to me if you want any uh, advice about what to eat and not in the last days. (laughs) So... It's very different. It's one thing like Paul to say that you that your life is a living sacrifice, as scripture says, and that's what I hope to be. And it's another thing when you're face to face with things like that to actually live it. So lastly, God quiets the crowd. Our ending verse in 40 says, So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, the Holy Spirit put them into, I say, you know, a little bit of a stupor, because Paul's going to address them. But that's your cliffhanger. He spoke to them saying, what did he say? We'll have to figure that out next week. And not actually next week, two weeks. We have a break next week and then two weeks. So Um, you'll have to come back so we can see what he says and do our our lesson there. So this morning, ladies, we followed Paul, covered a lot, his traveling companions from Tyre to Caesarea. We had another tearful plea, more than one, toward Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul was resolute. We watched him compelled by the Spirit and his commitment, spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we saw him sacrifice yet again for the sake of the unity of the church by agreeing to the plan set forth by the Jerusalem elders and how even the best laid plans sometimes don't achieve the result that we're hoping for. But instead, Paul was falsely accused, attacked, and threatened only to come up for air and to beg this crowd to listen to him about our beloved 
Jesus Christ. So how are we doing with our lives as living sacrifices, <laughs> growing in that, believing in the power of the gospel so much that we cannot be deterred, knowing and being excited about our place in God's story, and trusting the sovereignty of God, even when he allows circumstances or other people to make things uncomfortable in our lives. We can all grow in that. I know that I need to. So let me just pray before we close. Lord, thank you so, so much for this time together. Thank you that uh, the call that you give to us in our lives, you give us the power and the ability, Lord, to do that. May we May we just love you more. May we love the church more and the people in it and be fervent in our, in our hope to see you soon and to love you and to love one another. And we just pray for a glorious rest of the morning in Christ's name. Amen.